0: Welcome to another inspirational episode of Monetizing Your Creativity.
1: Dana Gonzalez is a primetime Emmy winner for his cinematography on the TV series Fargo. I was young, I was 20
2: years old. I didn't think it was possible. But once I saw it happening in front of me, and and for some reason I even saw that there was possibilities, then I, I went for it and I basically focused completely in the camera department at that moment. I remember coming home, and I was, still lived at home at the time, and I told my uh, my parents, like, this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life.
0: Monetizing your creativity asks the question, what does it take to earn a living with your
2: creative talents? I was probably always telling people that this is what I do, I'm a first assistant, I'm really, a, uh, that's what I wanna do, and, and I think you tell people enough that you know you, you should. I think all people should always telegraph what they want to do or what they're trying to achieve. I think I told enough people, and so when the time came, this uh, DP he gave me a break.
0: We focus on the success principles common to all disciplines by interviewing producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, music composers, animators, designers, and much, much more. Learn how to create your own path to success. Let's roll. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. I'm your host, Marvin Polis, and joining me is your co-host, Fred Keating. Fred is in Vancouver, Canada today, while I'm on the other side of the Rocky Mountains on the Canadian prairies in the province of Alberta. And you're going to learn why in a few moments, because there's a special connection to our guest. Now, Fred... Tell our listeners who you have in the room with you as our guest today.
1: Well, Marvin, Dana Gonzalez is a primetime Emmy winner for his cinematography on the TV series Fargo. He was nominated for his work in season one, nominated again for season two and won it. And I'm with him just as he's packing up to uh, join the Fargo family for season three. And who knows what that will bring as he's about to travel back to Alberta from British Columbia. Thank you for letting me sneak in at the, at the last moment here, Dana, and uh, get to chat with you.
2: Thank you. i uh, really happy to be here.
1: Now, as great an achievement as an Emmy is, for me, it's always the stepping stones along the way that are greater interest. So, Back to the beginning. Dana, when did you first fall in love with finding life through a lens?
2: You know, I grew up in Los Angeles and uh, was surrounded by the film industry from an early age, but I, I didn't really, it was kind of strange because I think it was so close and so big, it seemed so unreachable. And especially in those days, there was a lot of nepotism, and, and you probably had to know somebody to get in the business. And I'm first generation, so my family wasn't in it. It seemed unachievable. I was lucky enough to get a job driving a truck on a low-budget movie. Literally the very first day, I fell, I fell in love with the business. And it's just because something about it, the. There was a freedom. I I can't explain it, but but it's like the circus. It's like walking into the circus and you've seen all the possibilities or something and saying, you know what, this is for me. An office wasn't for me, this is for me. I gravitated quickly to the camera department because I was always interested in photography, but I was young, I was 20 years old. I didn't think it was possible. once I saw it happening in front of me, and and for some reason, I even saw that there was possibilities because of that, then I I went for it. And I basically focused completely in the camera department at that moment. That was my uh, my first break, I guess, in the film industry. But that's hardly a break. (laughs) That's basically like, here's what's out there, you know, but when I was done with that first film, I had no idea how to get another job, none, none at all. But the beauty of it is from that job, somebody referred me to another job, you know, like a week later, I got called to do a, a free be on the, some short or something. And I gladly took it and uh, I was super excited and took that job from there. Someone referred me to another job, which was a bigger feature film as a second assistant. And from there, I just, I met some more people and got another job and another job and another job. But like I said, I was really focused on what I was doing. I was, um, I, I loved it. I loved everything about it. You know, I I joke about around with people still that I'm still intrigued by the free lunch. (laughs) You know, I just, (laughs) I love the business as much then as I do now, maybe even more now, you know, so it's actually gained in steam, but it it really comes back to that first moment. I, I, I remember I drove the truck that first day on that first movie. I got out of the truck and it was literally like a circus, people running around, costumes, just like the classic Hollywood story. It was on Highland and Hollywood Boulevard in the heart of Hollywood. It was like, everything you think being on a film set should be, you know, and then finally, I was like, I was there. I remember coming home, and I was, still lived at home at the time. And I told my, uh, my parents, like, this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. And they, they kind of took that with a grain of salt. Like, oh, well, you know, sure, okay, whatever. Um, but I really
1: meant it. I never looked back. Now, the camera department is one that has some pretty specific jobs and a fairly uh, easily identifiable Hierarchy. And I, I noticed when I researched the trajectory of your particular career, the various job categories in camera that you had as you rose. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of those jobs and what the differences are and why some people might be so good at them that they want to stay there? They've reached their comfort level and why you sort of started to transcend those and look to the next level.
2: Well, my, like I said, my first job, I was driving the truck. That truck had every piece of equipment of that particular movie, a low budget movie. So I met the first assistant cameraman on that job and became friends, we're still friends today. And um, within that movie, I started loading film. So when I left that film, I was a second assistant. I spent about a a year and a half as a second assistant, which is not a a long time, but at that time there was a lot of million dollar films, two million dollar films, it's it's kind of in the 80s. So I went from film to film to film. So I got a lot of experience but something inside me said I wanted more. I mean, I, when, I, when I first started, I, 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 loved, I loved loading film. I loved everything about it. But then I saw what the first assistant was doing, the focus puller, and kind of the responsibility he had. And another interesting thing happened to me. I got a phone call one day, probably a year and a half into, into my career, and they were looking for a assistant, a first assistant, to go to Indiana on this low-budget film. And I, in a weird way, I think they called, I think somebody gave this DP some names and I don't think he said that he just said, here's some names. And, and I don't think the guy knew I was a second assistant to tell you the truth. And he gave like my name and, and the first assistant I worked with his name as well. We well, called me and, I took the job. It was my very first first assistant feature. It was out of town, my first location job, and I took it. You know, I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go. Looking back, I was over my head, but it was a low budget film and I knew enough. I knew probably more than a lot of people there, and I was willing to, to fail. And I was willing, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it, and felt strong and committed to it. And you know, like I said, I look back now, and it's like, you know, I was making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> but I got through that, and when I came back from that job, I basically made a decision which i think is a really important thing i made a decision to stop second assisting and focusing on first assistant cameraman so i basically turned down all the second assistant jobs that were offered to me and starved a little it, it, it was okay you know i didn't i had a 400 a month rent it wasn't a big deal um but i had friends that were working as grips and electrical and and so i did some day playing doing that which interests me just because to learn that side of it, which later as I became a DP was important. So I, I kind of dabbled in that a little bit and and then tried to meet DPs and have them hire me as, as a first assistant. And so I think probably one of my second jobs and another break was I was a best boy grip on a horror movie, I forgot what it's called now actually, Um, and the first assistant was leaving the film. So me and a lot of other crew members made a pitch to have me replace her as the first assistant, and just because they, you know, I think I was always, I was probably always telling people that this is what I do, I'm a first assistant, I'm really a, a, that's what I want to do. And and I think you tell people enough that, you know, you you should, I think all people should always telegraph what they want to do or what they're trying to achieve. I think I told enough people, and so when time came and she left, this uh, DP, he gave me a break. And I became the first assistant on that movie. Again, right after that, I think because of maybe that director or those producers, I did another film with them as a first assistant. I think I ended up doing about ten more films with those guys. These kind of B movies, and uh, again, making tons of mistakes and honing my craft and loving every moment of it. You know, I was making a hundred dollars a day or something, working you know crazy hours. But you know what? I loved every moment of it. Somehow. In the middle of that, as a first assistant, I kind of made a, another stand in my career. I, I knew I had to get out of the low budget world. I was very much entrenched in this low budget films, and it's like a circuit. It's like you literally can go from one to another in those, in those days. I don't know if it's the same today, but non-union. Oh yeah, I wasn't in the union yet so basically you can go from film to film to film. So I kind of made another stand and said, I'm going to go after bigger films because I, I need to get out of this, this low budget world. And I had higher goals. Again, I think I made another stand and stopped working on those and, and waited for better jobs. And, you know, it's about meeting people. I met somebody else, another DP, and they took me somewhere and I met another DP and, you know, and then eventually I met a, some higher caliber Cameraman, and they liked what I did, probably because I I learned a lot on those low-budget films and made my mistakes early. So not with them. I started getting higher quality jobs. I started uh, doing bigger features, and that was probably my first. My first um, five years was probably mostly features as a, a first assistant. I got in the union in 1988, which was amazing. They basically changed the rules of the union and opened it for if you had certain qualifications in 1988. And I was literally the first person to sign up. The day the rule changed, I was down at the union. I I paid them my money. I mean, I was ready. I was like, I heard it was happening. I saved my money. It was $1,200 I had to put down at the time or something. I was literally the first guy in line, signed up, got in the union. And, you know, that paved the way to, again, uh, bigger jobs.
0: Now, Dana, you've talked about how important relationships are and and how one referral leads to another referral and and how you sort of moved up the food chain. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because you mentioned that you moved out of the realm of low-budget films into higher-budget films. And I know that on your credits, you worked on Paul Haggis' Academy Award-winning film, crash, and being a Canadian myself, I'm a fan of Paul Haggis. So can you tell us how you moved into that position?
2: After being a first assistant, I became a camera operator. When I became a camera operator, I really was becoming a DP at the time. I I quit assisting. Again, I took another stand. I stopped assisting altogether. I was actually making a lot of money. I did a lot of high-profile jobs. I was probably one of the top commercial assistants at the time. And I walked away from it all to become a DP. I literally starved for about a year and a half. You know, luckily I made some decent investments and bought some rental property when I was first assistant. But I had to sell one of them, which was my first house, which it really hurt me. But I, you know, I was like, I don't care. I'm, I'm not going to work. It was, it was the most glorious year and a half of my life. I think what I had to do. I, I worked with a lot of great cameramen as an assistant. And I felt like I was in one in particular, and I felt like I was emulating, trying to emulate that cameraman. And, you know, we're all individuals. We all have our own style. You can't emulate anybody. You know, we could look at people's work and, you know, celebrate their work and understand it. But, you know, I I think we're really all have our own individual style. So that year and a half was actually a very reflective time where I went back to who I think I always was and my kind of artistic goals and I found myself on that journey I started operating because um there was a another good friend of mine who became a DP that who shot Crash Jimmy Muro and he uh he wanted to hire me to be the a-camera operator on on Crash and you know it was a seven million dollar film at the time I didn't really know I mean, Paul Haggis was from TV, you know, he hadn't really done too much in, in the feature world. When you're working on a movie like that, it's like, it's not like there's this lights going off saying this is the Academy Award winning film of the year. It just doesn't happen. I was very involved with that movie, actually, from the beginning to the end. I did all the color correction on it. It was like one of the early digital color films, right when it was transitioning from film prints to D.I.'s. So I wanted to learn that process, and um, Jimmy Muro, the DP, wasn't available to do it, so I, like, stepped in and said, yeah, I'll, I'll do the whole thing. And so I was involved in that film to, the like, the really the end, and I didn't have any clue that it was going to do so well. That particular year, it was up against Brokeback Mountain, and Brokeback Mountain beat it every festival, every, you know, the Golden Globes, you know and then the academy awards came and was nominated just like it had been with all the other the films uh other festivals and award shows against brokeback and um that moment when it won best picture you know i i think i cried a little bit you know it was just like it, it was crazy because you don't know you don't know you just do your best work and there was a lot of great things happening you know as we were doing it i knew that so that was kind of in the middle of that journey that's how i got. um I end up doing crash, so it, you know it was amazing.
1: When you talk about camera people having their own styles, uh, directors of photography, cinematographers, how do you adapt your style to the needs or the demands of the script?
2: I mean, I, I think everybody does different things. You know, for me. I kind of always start at the script and listening to the director. I think what maybe separates my work from other people's is I don't have a shtick. I don't know if there's a Dana Gonzalez look, you know, I, I mean, yeah, there's some quality of light that I like and things like that, but I read the script, talk to the director, try to understand, you know, the story or, you know, if a TV show would be the arc of the show or if it's a film, just the arc of those characters in the film that gives me everything I need to know for the look of the film. And I think that tells me the type of lighting I should use, the color of the light, the mood that they should be in for that part of the movie or in a story in a TV show. And to me, that's, it's very easy. And I know sometimes I wait till the rehearsal, literally to make that decision of what I'm going to do. Is it going to be five lights or is it going to be one light? I'll watch a rehearsal. I'll see how it's played out. And I'll adapt to that. You know, that, that's my style. Not everybody works that way. It works for me. I, I, kinda, I kinda like that. You know, I always have, I know I have the tools and everything I need to, to do anything most of the time when I'm working, but I don't have to use everything that I have. I can, I literally can use no light or one light or 10 lights, you know, so that's how I do it.
0: Now, Dana, we're just about up on time. And I just want to sneak in with one more question here. Of course, everybody answers to somebody in the food chain. And in the case of the DOP or the cinematographer, that person is answering to the director. What are the expectations of the director? What are they looking for when they hire the DOP?
2: The first thing is they, they see your reel and they see something they like, some style they like. Normally what they do is then they meet a couple of DPs. So, you know, they'll see a couple people's reels they'll like. Then you have to meet them. Now, sometimes you, it's Skype, which is not always the best. But, you, you know, you hopefully you have a meeting face to face. And that meeting really is about chemistry and Seeing, you know, I can work with this person because, you know, when you're do- especially when you're doing a film, a, a feature film, you're going to go deep with this person and they're going to be next to you the whole time. And they need to understand you. And, and you know, they're trying to make the right decision based on that, because, you know, it's not always about the best reel. It is about chemistry. I mean, no- normally, at least where I am now, everybody that they're interviewing is great and they're all talented and they all can do something great with these projects. So it really comes down to like, they're saying, you know what, I really like the vibe of this person. And, you know, I think I could, I could really make something great with this person. And, you know, that's super important. It's not just about having a great reel and and incredible work. You have to have some people skills and, you know, hopefully be real. I think I'm always very real when I go into a meeting and sometimes I don't get jobs because of that, because I'm gonna go in there, I'm gonna be myself. If they're interested in that, which most of them are, then, then we're we're gonna do fine, and if they're not inter- interested in that, then you know I don't need to be there, and they don't need me th- to be there. <laughs>
1: Marvin, I know we're coming up on time here, but Dana is just starting to touch on on some things that I think are really interesting and quite exciting to explore. I'm wondering if we couldn't uh, sneak back in at some point when you have a minute or two and allow us to pursue this whole angle of Dana Gonzalez the team player as opposed to just the D.O.P. or cinematographer and talk a bit more about your approach in the audition or interview situation is is that possible of course I'd love to
0: thanks for joining us Dana we'll look forward to talking to you again thank you so much I appreciate it thanks for tuning in to monetizing your creativity be sure to join us next time by subscribing to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts while you're there please leave a review it helps us with our ratings You can also visit monetizingyourcreativity.com for more information about the show. And hey, be sure to tell your friends who want to understand how to monetize their creativity.